0: Hey
1: there product lovers, welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo, and super fan of all
0: things product.
1: Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products, as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love Podcast. Well, welcome over to the product today. I'm here with Brett Kleener, general partner at Bonfire Ventures. Brett, thanks for being here. Why don't you kick it off by giving us a little overview of your background?
0: You know, as you can tell by, well, you can't tell visually because it's a podcast, but you can tell by the whiteness of the beard. It's a long and storied background. Kidding. I am a um, general partner at a uh, venture capital firm today called Bonfire Ventures. It's a $100 million fund. And we invest in seed stage B2B software companies. I've been doing that for about two years. And it's an interesting firm in that we make a few bets within the fund and we are heavily involved in working with our founders. Prior to Bonfire, I primarily worked as a software executive and entrepreneur. Prior to Bonfire, I worked at a pre-revenue startup called Smart Recruiters in the recruiting space as COO and worked with the founder there to get that business north of 30 million recurring. Prior to that, I spent 12 plus years at salesforce.com. Early executive, many roles there, sort of three stints. The first third, I would say, was on the first head of field operations around the sales side and figuring out what, creating what is the SaaS repeatable model for go to market. Ran all of product for a number of years at Salesforce, and then ran some of our larger acquisitions, including data and marketing cloud. And before that, I worked at a company called Siegel Systems. And then another little thing is I'm an angel investor. And one of my most exciting angel investments is in Pendo, where I actually serve on the board. Because when I met with Eric and Todd and Rahul and the team and Trone early on, it was pretty clear to me that the world would become product-led and this little engine that could and Pendo seemed to have the best opportunity to go pursue that. So, that's my background.
1: So, talk to me a little bit about product at Salesforce. Um, Take me through the, the stages there, how the product evolved, the challenges you had.
0: Sure. Well, I think the interesting question is, how did I get to running product? You know, I was running, effectively, the front office of the business. Sales, sales enablement, product marketing, competitive, et cetera. Primarily when we were, you know, 2006, 2007, we still were primarily a mid-market SFA company. We probably had 50 engineers max, very few front-end engineers. And I remember a conversation with Mark Benioff, and he was like, well, what do you want to do next? I was like, ah, oh, you don't really need me. This thing's, this recurring model is fine. And he said, well, what's the role you think we need to do? And I was like, I think we need a more comprehensive product strategy and approach. I think there's, a number of multi-billion dollar market opportunities across a number of horizontal clouds, sales, service, marketing, analytics, if you will. And I think we also need to think about how we can cleverly serve the needs of people in, that were small, middle, and large, you know, different packaging and product. So you called my gambit and you said, Why don't you run product? So that's how I got into product. So You know, when I joined Salesforce in product, when I was running product, we had a very small development team, primarily a team uh, trying to serve the needs of an SFA marketplace. And-
1: uh, How big was small?
0: uh, Five product managers, 40 to 50 developers, you know, one product, you know, Salesforce automation. There was no platform. There was the beginning of an app exchange. That's how small it was. And- Heavily backend oriented, you know, the original Salesforce was written in PL SQL, you know, this is before next gen UX frameworks. So, you know, that's where it was. We think about how did it evolve? You know, I really looked at it as a business opportunity. What was the opportunity? And so when I think about the big changes that I, in partnership with Mark and Parker and George, who and others tried to orient was how do we move from one product to many, you know, you and I've had this conversation. What's a cloud, you know, different buyer. What's a module, same buyer, but they should pay more. what's a feature, like stuff we should include in what they're already paying. So really moving from one product to many, one market to many, which is primarily serving the mid-market, and if you think about enterprise, they really care about platform and integration and customization and scale. When you think about SMB, it's really about self-serve. From sort of no acquisitions, we didn't really make acquisitions, to many. Right, and having an acquisition strategy and a partnership strategy, moved from no app exchange to a formal app exchange where you know, we unearthed the platform that people would build on. And through all of that, really how did product evolve in terms of, what did it mean to be a product manager? And it moved from being somewhat of an inbound role and, and pretty good on product marketing. And Salesforce had world-class product marketing, obviously Mark's probably one of the best product marketers ever to really more of a GM role. You know, I've seen some scuttlebutt online, or PM, our product people, GMs, and I, you know, honestly, I believe that they are. If you are moving from one motion to many, and I think that it is the role of a product leader to be a general manager of that business and basically explain how they're going to drive more revenue, i.e. either more new business, more expansion, or better retention. And I believe it's their job to try to excite and energize you know, the go-to-market teams that usually be horizontal in marketing and sales to pay attention to them. So, you know, really strong business leaders that would be held accountable for the success of those product lines, even though very few direct resources work for them. It's so a long the answer to a short question, but I guess there was a lot of change. Yeah, no, the,
1: there's a lot to dig into there. So let's start with the first thing I wanted to chat a little bit about. So you move from go-to-market over to product. And I imagine that worked in large part because you are building something for yourself. Is that correct?
0: Well, I mean, the interesting thing was I was a dork in high school. Like I went to Atari camp and I coded in basic. So there was very much sort of a product person within me. Look, I think it helped in that I was a target buyer. It also helped that my prior experience at Siebel, it wasn't unclear to me which of the existing horizontal markets – we're basically not paying attention to cloud, right? So we were in SFA. I had known that Siebel had made most of its money from call center and analytics. So, you know, I was like, we need to go into the contact center. We need to go into analytics. So it didn't take a genius uh, to say to do that. I would say it most worked because I think I was able to attract killer people. And you've worked with me in the past you know, find the right way to get them motivated to say that they can go take that hill. Because it's tricky. You know, a product manager at most manages maybe a few product managers. In some words, maybe PM has design. But you don't run dev, you don't run QA, you don't run sales, you don't run marketing, you don't actually run anything. But if you're told you need to go make this happen, you, you kind of need to create, if you will, these individual color personalities. And so I think, you know, in Salesforce, it was growing so fast that it was very easy to hire terrific people and give them a long runway.
1: So that's another thing to dig into. One of the things you talked about was moving from one product to many. Talk to me about when, you know, like when companies should make that decision because there's a risk of them doing that too early and fragmenting focus, right? So when's the right time to do that and what challenges are they likely to see in doing it?
0: You know, these are conversations we have at Pendo, right? In my mind, the first question I would ask myself is, is it the same rep or is it a different rep? So if early on you're like, I saw widget A to customer type A, and you're like, oh, I've created widget B. And I'm like, can you sell widget B to A? No, i got this brand new customer I've never talked to or marketed to or sold to or service. We're going to go sell it to them. I'll be like, whoa, whoa, slow your roll. And so in my mind, one, there should be, enough critical mass of you selling the first product that you've been selling into an existing customer. You should have had enough success that the product is somewhat sticky within that, such that you are able to sell within that account. It may be a different buyer within that account, but it's sort of, it's either another product to that buyer or a buyer either upstream or downstream from your buyer that it's, it's kind of a natural extension to go sell whatever that product is. And so that's kind of what I evaluate first, which is is there one, enough critical mass that it could be successful? Two, have you, you know, have you built a strong enough motion of what you were selling? Like don't go start, do something kind of interesting and then start at your stride and then move off of that. And I also think to some extent, it comes down to where you are from a resource perspective, right? You know, if you're Series A, Series B, uh, even though those are different in today's terms, and how much money and how you know, often getting, like until you get to some level of critical mass where you can put some resources on a you know a second product or a second market, don't waste your time. I'm not a big fan of experiments.
1: And so, what's that critical mass from an employee standpoint, or a fundraise standpoint, or a revenue standpoint? I mean, I would think those would be kind of the the different metrics, maybe.
0: In my mind, you should be able to get to 10 million in revenue in software selling product A to buyer A. Okay. I think you should be able to get to 20 to 25 in selling product A to buyer A, but where buyer A is in a different size company. So, you know, you might sell 10 million of your product to somebody in mid-market. All right, you should be able to get to 10 million. The next motion is Let's go sell up market or down market or in a different region. So generally you should be getting, in my mind, a 25 to 30 million of recurring revenue uh, before you start considering like product two, in my mind. That being said, where I would say it's differing is if you are creating a brand new category and there's a lot of noise and it's unclear where the nucleus of the buying power is going to end and there are other competitors sort of coming at your market from adjacent buyers it makes sense in those situations to stretch a little outside of your normal buyer is the only one area where i kind of go huh but look i'm a big fan of aligning resources you know across your organizations against clear missions but you know these are conversations you and i have often about all the opportunity Pendo has with adjacent buyer and adjacent markets, but how do we make sure that we do a really good job in the markets we're in and making sure that customers are super excited and passionate before you move on to another market?
1: Yeah, and I, I think we talked about moving not only from one product to many, but probably answered moving from one market to many because that's that's intertwined in, in a lot of ways in, in most companies, right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean... What's interesting, what I say is different from 10 years ago, or like 15 years ago, it'd be like, I got a software company, it's an enterprise software company, it's a little complex, it's more platformy, and I'm going to go hire a band, an army of seven people, like an IBM six-headed sales process to go sell this thing. Or I'm freemium, and you're kind of one or the other. What I would say now is that I don't think any successful software company is successful without a product that's easy to use that buyers sort of fundamentally understand regardless of the market that you serve. So, you know, historically you would see people in enterprise be like, Oh, we got to create an SMB product. I'd be like, folks, that's going to be a bit tricky or S and B product saying, I'm going to go conquer enterprise, you know, and then run into their first like enterprise SLA requirement or some list of a hundred custom features that, you know, a large bank wants. So that's, You know, what I think. I think entering new markets, the other interesting thing is, especially when people go into new geos or a brand new market. Let's say you're an SB company, you want to go into enterprise, or let's say you're in the US and you want to go to Europe. There's a minimum critical mass of people that kind of need to own launching and running that to make it successful. And absent that, kind of don't bother, you know? And so from a product side perspective, the conversation I will always have is like, if this is really important, is there a dev lead for this initiative? Is there a product lead for this? And is there a product marketing lead for this? And if the answer is no, then it's not that important. So don't waste your time on it until it's important.
1: So a couple of things. Uh, I've got a lot of questions still from this one answer, but... Small business to enterprise, enterprise to small business. Which is harder, moving up or you know having a strong enterprise product and, and uh, moving and down?
0: Moving down is far much is much much harder. And why is that? DNA. Enterprise is custom. Enterprise implies we have a lot of resources and a lot of people to go explain to the customer and sell the value and service and the rest of it. And so. You're able to throw a lot of resources and, quite frankly, be somewhat sloppy in how efficient you are in how you market, how you, the product you build, discovery, et cetera. Whereas down market's a machine, right? So it's very much DNA. So it's much easier to start SMB because, in my mind, if you start SMB, you're going to be a PQL. It's going to be very much a product led discovery. Like that product, at the low end, the product is bought and it's not sold. Right, You think about like Pendo, we started out product. It was a widget. It was installed and it was bought, not sold. And we evolved to going up market and selling. And they were like, well, you know, we've gone too far on the selling side. Let's do Pendo free on the low end. So whereas if you're an enterprise company, you don't, one, you don't even know what it means to offer like a self-serve trial experience where you would educate person. You have no idea how to think about demand gen in a way that, you're driving a lot of traffic. You don't rely on content marketing on top of funnel. It's just a fundamentally different DNA. Whereas I think people that start S&B can get there over time. I would just never go SMB to enterprise, right? I'd go S&B, you know, to larger, to MBs, to like baby enterprise. But I'd be very clear as I move up market that look, we have a very clear intentional view of what our product is and who it's for. And if this is what you like, great. But if you're going to come to me and say, you know, I want you to change your entire roadmap because I'm a large customer, then we're not right for each other. The other interesting thing is that what do enterprises really like? Well, they really like products that are easy to use. Like There's this weird misnomer that you can get away an enterprise that easy to use product. What does enterprise mean? I've got a large organization of people all over the place. Before COVID, they were disparate. Everyone's disparate now, disconnected. Uh, the amount of training to go get these people to use it and the rest of it is a mess. So the fact that if you can stick as you move enterprise as an SMB company to keeping your product easy to use, but backed up by a platform that supports what I call the illities, you know, reliability, scalability, security, you know, whatever, then you have a chance of winning. But I can't think of an enterprise company that's been successful in SMB. I mean, literally cannot think of one.
1: No, nothing pops quickly into my head. I, I know my listeners are probably going to tell
0: me. I mean, maybe Tesla, you know, they started out with, uh, you know, the Lotus Elise, you know, whatever it was, the Coupe, you know, down to the Model 3.
1: I think it's different for hardware, though, too, isn't it? I mean, in some way you can get... You know, well-heeled buyers, in essence, helping you develop the infrastructure you need to go after the the mass market. Yeah, it's different.
0: Yeah, I was being somewhat facetious, but I cannot think of a software company.
1: Yeah, software I think is particularly difficult. I imagine hardware is, in some ways, going is harder going the other way, going from you know, uh, I imagine hardware is easier or harder, whatever you want to say. I think it's easier going from enterprise down to uh, mass market in a lot of ways, but. I'm I'm no hardware expert, but I do think there's an opportunity to go after kind of supplying the well-heeled buyer on a hardware platform and then using your learnings from that then to drive down the price point and attract, you know, a a smaller buyer at a smaller price, point, a person that is going to buy at a smaller price point. In
0: hardware. Yeah, in the hardware space. I don't see it in software.
1: Software, I think it is. You're right, and it comes down to the mindset of when you're building from the enterprise. It becomes very different than, you know, building in a self-service environment, and that mindset switch, I would think, would be difficult.
0: Yeah, you know, I think the biggest mind blow over the last ten years is we used to think of I had this right. I had this framework which doesn't work anymore. That used to be like, are you a utility, like a tool, easy to understand, sells itself? Are you an app? Or are you a platform? And normally. You could map those to SMB mid-market enterprise motions. But as we've seen, there's the rise of, if you will, the builder platforms, you know, which is these platforms that are for the builders. They're very much self-serve and they're, you could call them SMB, but they're actually marketed to individuals, right? And then they spread throughout the organization. So those are sort of, those are kind of the interesting hybrid companies that I sort of appreciate now. So, you know, one of the things going back to
1: the, you know, this early answer, the app exchange. So you guys were one of the first companies, at least, you know, trying to think back. uh, And I, I know I was in the industry at this point, but it was a little while ago when you did that at Salesforce, you were kind of one of the first companies that really created an app exchange. And that was different than just partners. It was a, a, a different approach to business. Talk to me about the thought process that led you guys to kind of invest so heavily in an app exchange.
0: Look, a lot of this had to do with BART's vision, which is platforms win in the end. But at a high level, we had X amount of resources. There was only so much product that we were going to build. There were only so many categories we were going to enter in. And so there was a clear set of capabilities and features that we weren't going to build. And if we could find other companies that were going to build in that area and invest in that area, it would make us stronger in competing with, you know, the Oracle's or the Microsoft's or the Siebel's and the others of the world. The second thing is when we looked at churn and retention across our segments, the number one indicator that a customer would never leave us was the number of API integrations they had done. So if Salesforce was integrated into a email marketing solution or a coding solution, et cetera, it was clear that they had moved from Salesforce being a contact management or a forecasting tool that they hoped their reps and managers would use to, this is what we're running our business on. And then third, you know, we really believed in the value of what I would call the app form or platform. You know, Salesforce was not, we were not in the business of trying to compete with AWS or Google from a hardware infrastructure in the cloud but at the end of the day, we looked really at the citizen developer. Like we looked at the, what we had seen with sales ops people that before using CIPA were miserable. And there was Salesforce where, you know, they became heroes. If you've ever gone to a Dreamforce, that energy is there, but what were they able to do? Without IT, they were able to build their own dashboards. They were able to build their own processes. They were able to customize their own fields, right? And so the idea is, if we could allow them to extend that and build any apps, whether you want to build it internally, or third parties wanted to build on it, then we knew down the road we were going to be a lot stickier. So that was the thought process at the time. But it wasn't like we were all saying, yeah, we got to do this. I'm, I remember off-sites where people like, forecasting doesn't work. We need PRM. And Mark would be like, eh, no, we need to invest in the App exchange." And it was tricky, like manage packages and how do we enable others to go do it? But we had to stick with it. But I still remember going trying to help some of the early companies on the app exchange to raise venture funding. And the VCs would be like, why would I invest in this company that's building on top of a these were native, you know, we evolved with native apps where you could build natively. They're like, why would we invest in companies that are built on top of a closed ecosystem like Salesforce? And we're like, well, you clearly don't understand, you know, how we forecast this business. So I'm glad to know that. Some of those investors were proven wrong and those that bet very early on those, you know, are considered some of the best SaaS investors today.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that is validating. So acquisitions, you know, you talked about moving from no acquisitions to many at Salesforce. Talk to me about the thought process that went into starting to buy other companies. Now you have, a, in some ways, a, maybe a natural pool of potential acquirees because of the App exchange, but also in some ways a conflict there. So talk to me about the process at Salesforce and then maybe talk to me about your advice for for product people right now that like the idea of doing acquisitions, maybe a little bit too much.
0: You know me. I'm a framer. So if we have a clear frame around in product, around these are the markets that we serve or aim to serve. These are the buyers of who we serve. And this is what they expect of us at least within sort of the next 24 months, what is it that we can deliver ourselves? What is it we could partner? And then what would it make sense for us to buy? Then against that frame about what to buy, you know, really in my mind, are you buying revenue? Like, am I buying a go-to-market? I want to go after a adjacent buyer. It would take me a while to build into that area. And they know how to sell to this buyer and they have some go-to-market motion. I'm buying sort of a business unit. Those are much harder to buy, actually. Or am I buying a team that comes with core expertise in a product they haven't figured out go-to-market and it's going to accelerate what I'd hope to build over the next 12 to 24 months? You know, I think the biggest challenge and the thing that people underestimate the most about acquisitions is what it takes to integrate them and your ability to retain talent. I think it is different now than it was, shit, 15 years ago, because 15 years ago you had monolithic architectures that you bought a company. This is before like service buses and you know service architectures. And so often you had to rewrite stuff in your core code base, which was hard. And it was hard to keep developers who were innovating that you bought to go do that. And so that's, you know, that's how I think about it. But in my mind, if you believe that it will allow you to accelerate a roadmap, that's really important to you. If you believe that it will allow you to accelerate or ease entry into a new market, you're not into, it's something to evaluate. The big thing that we did at Salesforce is we kind of did they were kind of expensive, but they're aqua hires. We did acquisitions often just to get great people and bring leaders in. Look, I think in my advice to product people, if you're buying another company before you're like 20 million in revenue, I don't know. Seems a little early to me. So I don't I don't have a magic eight ball, but I think at the end of the day, you need to be very clear about what is it you're trying to achieve in product, who you're trying to serve. And then when you're thinking about doing an acquisition, just make sure the narrative makes very good sense about why it's going to accelerate you know, what you're trying to do. And, you know, never, whatever your estimates are, on what it takes to integrate a company, double it.
1: Yeah, I think that that's good advice, especially on the integration side. It's going to be a challenge, not just from a product in an architecture standpoint, potentially, but from a cultural standpoint, right? And people underestimate some of the people issues in integration.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, acquisitions early are really tricky because of culture and energy. And ideally, if you buy a company, you know, if you're doing an acquihire or you're buying somebody before they hit whatever IPO they thought they were going to do or the rest of it, and it's not like a huge windfall for all the employees, Like It's got to be important enough that that founder of that company can say back to the founders, I fundamentally believe that the mission we're on is going to be accelerated by being bought by this company. And I believe that your individual roles and your level of learning and development is going to accelerate. If you can do that, it's great. If that's not the case, I don't know. It's a bit tricky.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would second all of that. Talk to me about the role of product management. Like We we talked a lot about your experience there. Talk to me about the role and how it's shaping software today.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm tough on this, right? I think in the companies that I work with, the head of product is as or more important than the head of revenue. Clearly, I believe in product-led, right? And part of that means that your potential buyer knows far more about your product than you want them to before you actually have your first sales conversation. And so if that's the case, who's responsible for owning your product and making sure that what they know or experience is exciting to them is super important. And so like your product can't, I mean, not only can it not suck, (laughs) it's gotta be great. And so I think great CPOs are becoming impossible to find. Like the two hardest things to hire right now are a great CMO, a great cpo and so why and this is back to like what do i think the role of product management is look i'm very much in thinking that a product manager's job is to basically define nail and own the product's rational and emotional identity right and what i mean by that is rational is okay, what does this product do and why does it have value? So somebody should pay attention to it and it is a vitamin versus a painkiller. Emotional is like, are you solving a core problem for this individual in a way that they will go out of their ways to promote your product to others, right? Like, you know, Pendo pushes, you know, ENPS and the rest of it. So second, they need to architect and align the entire organization around an effective roadmap and resource plan. Like, this is what we're doing this is not what we're doing. Are we all engaged in it because it ties back to this identity? They then need to drive an effective delivery of that, right? As part of delivery, they need to be very clear on what is a MVP of a product and not cheat, right? And create a lot of, you know, feature debt. And then they need to, along with marketing and product marketing and enablement, they have to position, you know, the so what. Like we built why, and this is what why is. And here's why it matters to this person such that you care to the sales team and prospect customer base. That's a big job, right? And one would argue the things I just said, you like, was that what a CEO does? No, that's what a CPO does. And so that in my mind is the role of product management. And I, and so, you know, if you're head of product and you work with me, it can be both fun and probably pain in the ass because I have high hopes and high expectations for the function.
1: Yeah, I, I can expect that that would be the case. What do you think about, you know, as the, the role of product management evolves, right? I mean, I look at, and there's a lot of product managers they are the, the first product manager at a company, and they think that they're going to have a huge impact on product direction. But a lot of it might already be set for a period of time. You know, a CEO has gone out and set the vision. There's been some founding team. So I can see like the role of a product manager changing as the company evolves, right? That first PM, when they first get there, might actually inherit a lot on the delivery side, probably more than they expect. But as you move into multiple products, you know, moving from one to many, as you move into multiple markets, the role starts to diverge in a lot of different ways. What do you think about that? I and mean, do you do you hire differently for not just a, a CPO, but product managers at the early stage versus later in a company's Yeah, journey. I
0: mean what, what you the way you think about it is early on you're trading off features and later you're trading off teams, right? Because you move from like one dev team with a list of 15, and you're prioritizing everyone's fungible. And then you move to like, oh, I got 10 scrum teams and they're mission-based teams and they're all going after this mission. But at the end of the day you can't fund them all equally. Yeah, look, I think the role changes. Usually early on, if you have a technical founder, you know, like Todd and others, look, the CPO or the first head of product is coming in and working with the founder and trying to like, let's get a structure and a focus and reality. Well look, look, you know, I joke, like, Mark let me believe that I ran product at Salesforce for a while. And I'd come up with these great priorities and the rest of it. But look, at the end of the day, everyone at Salesforce knew who ran a product. And that's fine. So look, I think it comes with seniority and level. And I don't hire that differently. But yeah, I mean, you join a startup with a product founder and it's early. You're there to like get the house in order. Let's get the construct. Like one of the key things, and we're in this conversation with Todd and Brian and Tron, like how often do you guys release? We release when the code's ready. And I was like, well, that's great. But like, how does anybody as a customer or go to market team actually know what's in the product if you're just releasing stuff? And I always have this battle, but like, how about we move to like monthly releases or quarterly releases? So we're more strategic around what we're building and why and how we communicate it so customers actually can accept that rate of change. So I don't hire that differently. But look, if it's early stage and seed, I can't afford to hire a CPO, right? You know, I don't get to go hire a CPO that has success at two or three startups that have won. So, you know, you're hiring a director of product as the companies evolve, I'm looking for somebody in that is really like a master of what I call portfolio planning, right? Like we have these different buyers, these different markets, these different teams. I only have hundred developers. I have these things that will make our existing customers happier that they're bitching about. And I have this stuff that my sales team says I need to go win new deals. And at the end of the day, you've got to basically Make a decision and do trade-offs It's really what I call strategic portfolio planning. I think that's the key evolution of how the role evolves.
1: How have you seen teams pivot in COVID, right? We're living in this COVID world. You know, how is that adjusted how product management is crafting software?
0: I would say, look, we're in the software industry. It's all a bit weird, right? COVID has been disastrous on many sectors of our country, and a lot of people Have been affected. Software industry has been interesting in that most software businesses, COVID has been a tailwind as opposed to a headwind. That being said, what I am seeing where I'm guiding product teams on is, one, let's make sure as it relates to existing customers, we understand where they are from the ENPS perspective, and let's make sure we retain them. Right. So, really thinking about what is it we're going to go do that's going to increase our net retention. Two, in regards to feature development and decisions on features, and especially in trying to win new deals, or go after new markets, no one is buying vitamins right now. Right. Like, this will make you stronger. Like, this will make you better. Nobody cares. I think we just get to the point. And at the end of the day, is this a, are you building a painkiller or not? So, unless you can explain to me, like, I've built this. You have this pain, Mr. Customer? Yes. Do you agree that this feature removes that pain? I do. So in my mind, painkillers over vitamins. I think UX matters more than ever. I think leveraging data to drive decisions, right? You know, I think what's been very interesting is that, look, I would say R&D has been the organization in software companies last 10 years that has tended to be more remote and distributed than other teams. But, you know with covid which is how do we collaborate on data so we can you know be more effective and the last one is really managing the energy of the teams like just because you can zoom all day doesn't mean you should and so i am seeing things across product and r&d teams and really checking in and understanding how many meetings are on somebody's schedule can we get more effective meetings and quite frankly just making sure everybody's okay right because like you and I talked at the beginning of the call, we'll put our politics aside, but each day I kind of read the news and look at stuff and I kind of got to go, rubruh, rubruh. let's talk about software. And we're probably not the only people. And so I think more checking in with teams to make sure that the energy of the team is good.
1: So. Let's, let's step back to the, the hire on the PM side. Traits, like what do you look for in both that early product leader who might be a director level person and maybe that, that CPO when you're ready to hire them? What, what are you looking for as far as traits?
0: Look, I think there are traits for this role, like any level of hiring from a software company, which is, are they good people, right? Like, would you like to work with these people? And are they clever? So, you know, it's the right level of IQ, EQ. So you look for IQ, EQ, and are they scrappy? Because especially early, you'll kid yourself that you have product market fit. But the reality is a lot of it's going to be testing, experimenting, and you just got to be ready, right? Like, you know, working in a startup in early days is like you get punched in the gut 30 times and one person misses and you take that as a celebration. So those are attributes you generally look for. But as it relates to within product, one is intentional, I want this person to have an opinion. I want them to be intentional around their beliefs. There's nothing worse than somebody in product, whether early director or leader, who is trying to reflect the opinions of everyone and come across as a politician. This is not a politician's role. This is someone, look, they're not jerks, they take data, but they are intentional. They basically say, these are our buyers. This is the identity. They make sure people are bought in, but they are intentional. People need to follow them. Second, I would say is they're an empath. Let me give you an example of an empath. I remember times at Salesforce. Look, I've worked for Tom Siebel and Mark Benioff. uh, Completely different people, very smart people. Sometimes difficult to deal with. But sometimes Mark would say stuff and kind of what he was saying didn't make the most rational sense, but what he was feeling was absolutely correct. And so instead of trying to respond in the moment to say, I got you, I got you, you're wrong or this or that, I would say, you know what? I hear what you're feeling and you're absolutely right. Let me come back in words what I think I heard you feel. And so- you need to be an empath around the product. You need to be able to listen to five chorus or con calls on the prospect or on the enterprise or on a customer and put the data aside and just get at the emotional level of like, you know, are we on track or not? Uh, third is they need to be analytical. They need to be able to look at data. They can't wing this shit. Right? I mean, look, Pendo is about taking product from a gut and art and making a science. I think they need to be a design czar. I used to use the word Nazi now, but I try not to use any words related to fascism these days. But like they need to care about design. And they need to like like it needs to break their heart if a feature ships with shitty design and customers are lost. And then finally, within all of that, especially as you move from an individual to a leader, you need to be a framer, not a director. And what I mean by that is you need to set the proper frame for how we think about trade-offs, the proper frame around personas, a proper frame of what's important so that you can then go hire amazing people and they can go operate within that frame. You know, I think one of the things I see in product orgs is you might get a great CPO and then I've got a bunch of junior people underneath them. And in my mind, my career has always been, let me go hire people that they should kind of have my job in a year or something went wrong. Like, I either hired the wrong person or I didn't onboard them correctly or I didn't give them enough executive exposure. So, you know, I think very much of somebody who sets a proper frame, hires great people, lets them sort of thrive within it. And then obviously of course, doesn't ever product rule is a weird one. I want somebody who's intentional, but they're the last person to take credit and they're okay with that. So anyways, that's what I look for. It's a lot. It's hard. But like I was on a call yesterday with a startup as part of our evaluation, we I say, introduce me to your head of product and R&D. And they were on the call. It's really interesting because, look, it's a startup. It's 5 to 50 people. I invest at that stage. And I asked them, in two years that you're successful, and someone says, you know, your product's amazing, and somebody says, really, what does it do? Can you each tell me what their answer was? And it was three very different answers. And I, and I said, that's okay, team. But by Friday, you guys had come back with one answer. Because there's no way we're going to be able to organize a couple million dollars of funding around sales, marketing, product, and success, unless we're very clear about the value that we saw.
1: I think that's a good segue now to what will be part two, where we talk to Brett about product from an investor's eye. So like a different spin on some of the stuff we talked to today, but we're going to dig in in part two about what it means to have a good product organization from an investor standpoint. And thanks, Brett.
0: All right, Eric. My pleasure.